Exodus chapter 3. I, I just before I begin, I want to encourage you guys. I just I want to ask personally that you pray uh, for me and that you pray for the church. Um, I meet Wednesday morning with one of the executive directors um, about the project out on the loop, and we will negotiate the ground lease settlement for that property. And so I covet your prayers that God's will shall be done. And if it is God's will and he gives us favor, if it's what he chooses to do, then we'll be a, we'll be a part of a, a wonderful thing that God can do in this community through a collaboration of partners. So I really, really covet your prayers for God's wisdom and God's favor. I was encouraged as I read through and studied through Exodus chapter 3. And there's so much in the scripture that applies to our life today. Some, so many people will read the Bible and they say, well, you know, the Bible is just not relevant for me. It's this book that was written thousands of years ago and I just don't see how it pertains to my life today. How in the world can I read about some guy named Moses who walked around in the desert for 80 years and what, what in the world does his life and his story have to do with me today? Well, actually it has a lot to do with you today because God doesn't work in the life of Moses any different than he works in the life of you. Now he might do different things in Moses' life and he might call Moses to do different things than he'll call you and me to do but this is true. God doesn't work any different now than he did then. Because God now, as he was then, is still working out his eternal plan and purpose. Moses, in the day that he lived and walked on this earth, was part of that eternal plan and purpose. Now here we are 3,500 years on the other side of Moses walking around in Egypt and the promised land or in the wilderness on the way to the promised land here we are 3500 years on the other side of that and guess what God is still working out his eternal plan and purpose the difference is now we're on the earth now we're walking around and now we are here during this our time of visitation on this earth and God is working his same eternal plan his same eternal purpose in and through our lives just like he did with Moses and the children of Israel. So there is much to learn. There is much to take and there is much encouragement. So let's read Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read it and you can follow along. Now Moses... Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from, from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And when 
When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, he called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I come down, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to, the, to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come and you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now... Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go, and you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, 
articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. Father, we ask that you would take this word, take this gospel, open our hearts. Lord, hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against thee. Specifically, God, that we would be a people of faith, a people not of unbelief, but a people who trust you, a people who trust not in what we are able to see, but we trust in what you have declared. We walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, make us that people that would give glory and honor to you in this world, that we would be salt and light and make your glorious name known both in deed and in word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So Moses is... Moses is now... When this happens to him, when he encounters God, Moses is 40 years removed from Egypt. Now we know Moses was 120 years old when he died. We know the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So we take 40 from 120, and we know that Moses was 80. He was at or near 80 when God called him to go to Egypt. And then God delivered the children out of Egypt, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So Moses now is 80 years old. He has been in the desert. He has been in the wilderness for 40 years. Remember, he left Egypt after he murdered the Egyptian, and he realized that Pharaoh would find out that he had committed murder, and indeed Pharaoh did. And Pharaoh sought the life of Moses for the murder that he had committed. And what did Moses do? Moses ran from Egypt, and he went to Midian, and he sits down at a well, and he meets some shepherd girls, and he helps them water their flocks. And they go home and tell their father, hey, this nice Egyptian guy helped us water our flocks. And dad says, well, where is he? Well, we left him back at the well. We'll go get him. So Moses comes to the house of Jethro. He ends up marrying one of Jethro's daughters, Zipporah. And now Moses is there living a peaceful life. He has a son, Gershom, and he names him this name that basically means that he has escaped his trouble. And now in this land, in this foreign land, He's going to dwell, and Moses is content to, to live out his life here. And so one day, Moses is leading the sheep, and he goes to this remote mountain. Now, it says it was the mountain of God, but it wasn't the mountain of God then. This is the same Mount Sinai that Moses will go up after he leads the children of Israel out, this is the same mountain that God will, upon which God will give him the Ten Commandments. Right now, it's just a mountain that Moses was wandering around on with the sheep of his father-in-law. And Moses, just out there in this remote place, minding his own business, all of a sudden sees this 
bush burning. And what was amazing to Moses was not just that the bush was burning, but what was amazing was the bush was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. Now, the Bible doesn't describe in any detail what this was like, but Moses does make this statement. He said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. In other words, I don't think this was a little fire. I don't think this was a little bush and a little fire. I think this was a great bush, and I think this was a great fire, and it was so great, and it was so noticeable that it got the attention of this 80-year-old man. Now, imagine Moses is 80 years old. He has been shepherding sheep in the deserts of Midian, wandering around this terrain for 40 years. And you have to know that in those 40 years, besides the other 40 years that Moses was in Egypt, you have to know that this 80-year-old man has seen some things in his lifetime. But he had never seen anything like this. And it was such a great sight that he turned aside to go and to look at it. And here's what we need to understand, church, when we think about this story. And this is what we see throughout the record of the Scripture, in particular in this instance with Moses. We see a consistent pattern with God, that God consistently, or we could say it like this, the consistent pattern with God is that God is consistently unpredictable in very predictable ways, if I can say that, and you can follow me. One thing that we can absolutely count on, one thing that is absolutely predictable about God is that He is unpredictable. What is absolutely consistent, though, is God's nature and who He is. Even with God's consistent unpredictability, He has consistently given to all this general assurance that he sees and hears and knows. He specifically says to Moses, I know the sorrow of my children in Egypt. Now we're 430 years on the other side of their entrance into Egypt, and they, they have now been slaves under hard bondage in Egypt for centuries. And God says, I know the sorrow of my people. Don't ever think that God does not know your sorrow as well, because he does. And he specifically promises to all who love him, to all who are the called according to his purpose, that he is eternally working all things together for good and for glory. That's the promise recorded for us in Romans 8.28. Therefore, we can be assured that He is the God who consistently sees and hears and knows. And what is consistently unpredictable is the exact manner and the exact time that God may choose to reveal Himself with any specific details 
concerning our circumstance and how it relates to his eternal purpose. We don't know when God will make that known or if God will make that known to us. But what he has made known to us is that he is never not working. He is ever working. He is ever bringing about his eternal plan and purpose. He is ever working for the good of his children and for glory. That we can know. That he has made plain to us in the midst of everything else that is unknown and unpredictable. We can be constantly, consistently assured that he is eternally and specifically working good and glory on our behalf, even when we cannot perceive it or predict it, even when we cannot perceive or predict his movement or understand them when we know he is. I know God's working, but I don't understand what he's doing. We look around us today in the world today, there is more uncertainty in some aspects, yet that increase of what appears to be uncertainty should make us as children of God even more certain of what God has revealed to us. Because none of this should cause us to be caught off guard or by surprise because this is how God works. This is how God has always worked. So even when we can't perceive his movements or understand them, we can know that he is at work, that he is working all things together for good and for glory. We can have that faith and that assurance, and that in itself is a grace that is sufficient for us. So let's look at some some of the things and some of the ways that God dealt with Moses. And when we look at these in Exodus chapter 3, we see some things that, that are predictable patterns that we can learn from that should encourage us and help us in the world we live in today, in our own personal lives. So you consider this Moses, now 80, out here in the desert, and all of a sudden, God reveals himself to him at the least expected time and in the least expected place and in the most unusual and least expected way. I'm sure the last thing Moses thought that he was going to encounter that day was this massive burning bush on fire that was not being consumed by the fire. You just don't get up every day and expect to see that. But God knew exactly what it was going to take to get the attention of Moses. So I want you to consider, remember, God may reveal himself to us at the least expected time, in the least expected place, and in the least expected way. Where's our example? Right here with Moses. Here's an example. After 40 years of being in the desert here, I don't think Moses was thinking that he was fixing to start off on the greatest and grandest adventure of his life. At 80 years old, I think he probably was okay with the fact that he was just going to be a shepherd and die a shepherd. 
there for his father-in-law and be content with his wife and his son. But no, unbeknownst to Moses, God had a plan that Moses had no clue of. God had a plan that Moses could not have even imagined, I believe, on that day that he encountered this burning bush. It was least expected in time, in place, and in method. Now consider another example God gives us. Consider a young betrothed virgin preparing for her wedding when suddenly an angel appears to tell her that God has chosen her to be the mother of his son. And the virgin will conceive and have a child, and she and her betrothed Joseph will have to deal with the predictable fallout of God's unpredictable plan. The most royal was born into the most common of families at the most inconvenient time in the most unlikely and lowly of places under the most unbelievable circumstances. What the Bible doesn't tell us is everything that Mary and Joseph had to deal with surrounding the way God chose to move and to work to bring the Savior into the world. But you can bet that there was some gossip going around town. You can bet there were plenty of people who had their own opinion of what really happened to Mary. Yeah, right, God made her pregnant. Sure. Poor Joseph. He's probably just too old and too homely and too undesirable to get anybody else, so he settled for this young girl who obviously doesn't want to be married to him. He should have just put her away. They should have just done to her what the law said. Can you imagine? And what, we, what, we, what, what the Bible doesn't tell us is exactly what happened, but we can imagine. How can we imagine that? Because people say the same things today. People make the same assumptions about things they don't know anything about. They make assumptions about you. They make assumptions about me. They make assumptions about people they see on the news, people they've never met, people they've never talked to, and we pass judgment and make assumptions about them just because. It's what humans do. It's what the sin nature does. And you think God could have ordered things in a way that would have made it very plain that, oh, wait a minute, guys, this is what I'm doing. And in a sense, he did that, but guess what? A lot of people don't pay attention to the things that God does and the things that God says. God will reveal himself to us in the least expected time, in the least expected place, and in the least expected way. Consider your own life and be encouraged. God is working in ways that you cannot know. In fact, he is working in ways that you would never choose for yourself. Just like I don't think Moses would have chosen for himself, because we're going to see he's arguing with God. He is resisting what God wants him to do, because he doesn't feel like he's the man for the job. I'm sure if someone would have just walked up to Mary and said, here's what's going to happen, she probably would have been in disbelief. But what did God do? He didn't just send a person. He sent an angel. 
he did it in a way where she had to take notice, just like he did with Moses, just like he will do with us. We also see this, that God can use the most unexpected and the most unusual thing to get our attention. What could have drawn the attention of an 80-year-old shepherd in the remote part of a desert on top of a mountain? Well, you and I might not know what that would be, but God does, right? God also knows what he will use to draw your attention. At the same time, he is working his eternal plan and purpose in you and through your life. And he is doing that right now. God can and God does use very common and usual things as he works in our life. He does it every day. The things that we take for granted, the, the, the most mundane things, the most commonplace things that we just pass by and don't notice and don't give any mind to, you better know that God is using all of those things to bring about his eternal plan and purpose in your life and in my life. But he also will use unexpected and unusual things. And it's usually in those unexpected times and those unusual things that get our attention. And he uses all things according to his eternal working of his eternal plan and purpose. God may choose to call us God may choose to call to us from the midst of that thing that is most unexplainable and most extraordinary. It is in some of the most unexplainable and extraordinary situations of life that God will call to us. Because it is usually in those times that are most extraordinary those times that are most unexplainable that have us wondering, that have us questioning, that have us in a place where now we are open to find out what in the world is taking place. Moses turns aside and he goes to this bush because he wants to know what in the world is going on here and from the midst of the burning bush the scripture tells us that God calls to Moses and like Moses God may choose to call to us from the midst of the most unexplainable and extraordinary circumstances God's work and God's call is not a single moment it is constant but there is that single moment when we become aware of God's work and God's call. It's not that God wasn't working 15 minutes ago. It wasn't that he just decided to do something when he made the bush erupt into flame. It wasn't that God just decided on the spur of the moment to pick Mary to be the mother of his son no, God had a plan, the Bible teaches us, before the world was formed, before he said, let there be light, before there was a moon or a sun or stars or a universe or galaxies. 
It's not that there's a single moment when God is working and God is calling us, but there is that single moment when we become aware of God's work and we become aware of God calling to us. God can choose to issue his call to us from circumstances that are so unexplainable, so extraordinary that we cannot pass by or turn a deaf ear. That may be a burning bush experience. But that one experience is only one part of the whole that God is doing. That moment of your life when you know that God called to you, that moment of your life, whatever it was, whenever it was, when God suddenly got your attention. There may be lots of those moments. I hope there are because there shouldn't just be one. Our life should be a sequence of these events where God, we are aware of God's calling. We are aware of God's presence. We should never be unaware of it. But there are those extraordinary times when we become aware and we turn aside from the things that we commonly do to encounter God. God in His grace gives us those moments. We can call those a burning bush experience, but we need to know that the point is not that that experience with the burning bush was the end for Moses. That was a moment to bring Moses to awareness to propel him into the next thing that God had prepared him for. Remember, God drove him. God drove him to Midian. God drove him into the wilderness, whether Moses realized it or not. And I don't believe Moses realized it until this burning bush experience. But God drove him into the wilderness and let him stay there for 40 years to prepare him to go back to Egypt and lead the people out. Now, in this burning bush experience, Moses is just now becoming aware of what God had eternally known, what God had eternally planned. Moses didn't have a clue. But now God was revealing to Moses the reality of what God was getting ready to do. Had God told Moses... In detail, this is what we want. We want God to give us a roadmap of our life. We want God to give us the flow chart so we can be aware of everything that's coming down the pipe. But the problem is, if God did that, not only would we not believe it, we would resist it. And so what does God do? God knows at the exact moment, at the exact time, that he needs to get our attention and reveal to us what the next step is in his eternal plan and purpose. And when that time comes, you better know that God is not going to allow you to walk by and disregard the burning bush. He will make sure he has your attention. He will call to you, and he calls to us in order to induce a response to him. God calls to Moses from the burning bush, and Moses responds, Here I am. And God's call to Moses was not in hope that Moses would respond. Listen, I want you to wipe this thought from your mind that somehow God is up in heaven going, oh, I hope, I hope Jeff will respond. I hope he will respond. I hope she will respond. No, please. That is a lie from the pit of 
hell. That's not who God is. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands, hoping that we're going to respond. Listen, when God called to Moses, God called to him and he induced a response. Now, I haven't had any experience personally about having being induced, but I do have seven grandsons, and I, and I do have two granddaughters now on the way. And I know that Mama Joy Ellen got induced. Now, you know what they, you know, when they induced her, they weren't hoping that she was going to go into labor. When they induced her, you know what? You know why they induced her? They induced her so she would go into labor. They induced her because they knew that was going to bring a response. God doesn't call to us in hopes that he will get a response. God calls us, and that call of God induces a response from us. God does not call us in hope of a response. God calls us to reduce to induce a response. God induces a response from us to birth something through us. There comes a time when God will call his children to produce a specific response for his specific plan and purpose. God's call will always produce a response. It will. It will always produce a response. It may be a response of unbelief, or it may be a response of belief. But when God calls, it will always produce a response. There was no doubt in God's mind when he called to Moses, the purpose of God's call was that Moses would respond in faith so that he would go back to Egypt and do what God had ordained for him to do the very moment he was brought into this world. And the same is true for us, church. God calls us in order to induce a response to him. We could go to Romans chapter 9 right now, and we could see exactly why God called to Pharaoh. So you have two characters in this same story. You have Moses and you have Pharaoh. God called to Moses to induce faith, a faithful action. God called to Pharaoh, Paul says, to induce a faithless action. God called to Moses so that Moses would respond to God in obedience. God called to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would respond to him in disobedience and his heart would be hardened. And through the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, the Bible says, God said to Pharaoh, through your hardness, I will manifest and magnify and glorify my power in all the earth. Did that happen? You better believe it is. You better believe it happened. Now think about this. 3,500 years ago, when Moses and Pharaoh were in Egypt, wrangling over whether the children of Israel were going to leave Egypt or not, or remain slaves, guess what didn't exist 3,500 years ago? about 30 miles northeast of Austin, Texas. Taylor, Texas didn't exist. Austin, Texas didn't exist. Texas didn't exist. 
United States of America didn't exist. This continent existed. But everything we know today, everything commonplace to us, everything we take for granted, that didn't exist back then. But here we are in a place that was non-existent, was not on anyone's radar screen except God's 3,500 years ago. Here we are today talking about how God took Pharaoh, hardened his heart, an already hard heart, and he did so. He called to him and he got a response that caused God's power and majesty to be magnified to the point in world history that we are still talking about it today. It worked. What God purposed to do, he did. What God purposes to do, he will. We can be assured of that. God's call will always produce a response. We get to verse 6. And God says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. The revelation of God's holiness, the revelation of his majestic power, will evoke a healthy fear of God that grounds us in his grace and strengthens us in our faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is not a negative thing. The fear of the Lord is a necessary thing. The fear of the Lord is necessary for us if we truly know who God is, if we truly know, if we have encountered His holiness, His majesty, His righteousness, His power that created everything that we know. When you come to know that, when you even get a glimpse of that God, it should evoke a fear of Him that grounds us in his grace because we look at God and we say, who am I that he should be mindful of me? Well, who am I? Well, who are you that God should be mindful of you? You are the object of his grace. That's who you are. The fact that we can come into God's presence and he doesn't immediately kill us and annihilate us is the grace of of God. It has nothing to do with whether you deserve it. It has nothing to do with how good you've been, how much you've earned, whether you've worked for and earned a place in his presence because you can't work for that. You can't earn that. You can't try hard enough, climb high enough. You cannot do it in yourself. If God allows us into his presence and he doesn't kill us immediately, it is because we are products of his grace. The person who does not know the fear of the Lord is a person that has not come to know God's holiness and his awesome, majestic power. There is no true knowledge, there is no true wisdom of God apart from the fear of the Lord. There is no true understanding of God's grace apart from the fear of the Lord. 
fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge of the Holy One, the Bible says. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. We often accuse God of not knowing of our sorrows, but I want to promise you, church, if there is anyone that knows your sorrows even better than you know them yourself, it is God. God sees, God hears, and God knows. And the truth is not debatable. That truth, God absolutely sees, He absolutely hears, and He absolutely knows. And He knows your sorrow. That truth is not debatable, although it is not always comfortable. And the reason it's not always comfortable Because the problem for us comes when we feel or we believe that God is not responding to what we see, what we hear, and what we know because God is not responding in the way or in the time that we ourselves would. We ask the question, why isn't God doing what I know needs to be done? Because it's not that he's deaf. It's not that he's blind. It's not that he's dumb or ignorant. God seeing and God hearing and God knowing is not related to our own. And his response is certainly not either. Amen? In verse 8, he says, so I have come down. I know their sorrow. I see, I hear, I know their sorrow. So I have come down to deliver them, to bring them up. We have the promise that God will move in his time. God is not waiting for us. God has declared, I have come down to deliver them and to bring them up. God is never waiting on us. He is ever proactive and never reactive. We believe God is reacting to things when in reality, He is eternally ahead of us. We should never question if God is going to move or work. It is only a matter of when and how His eternal plan and purpose is going to be revealed and made known, if it is. We know He has one. We know, we don't doubt God has a plan, right? But we don't always know what that plan is. We know generally what that plan is. It's glory. It's salvation. It's glory. It's good. But we don't know the details of exactly how he's going to get from point A to Z, right? We know there's points in between, but we, we can't always see them. We can't always understand them. We can't always wrap our minds around that, and we want to do that really bad because we're human beings who need to know, and we need to know because we need to be in control. And when we're not in control and we don't know, we don't like it. That's what got man in trouble in the beginning when he decided that he was going to be in control and not God. 
The good news is God didn't react to man's fall. God already had a plan in place anticipating man's fall. God is not waiting on us to come to him. He has come to us to deliver us and to bring us up with him. That's not just good news, church. That's great news. Skip down to verse 14. Moses said, okay, God, if you're sending me, who do I tell them? They're going to ask, what's your name? Verse 14, and God says to Moses, I am who I am. Some translations, I am that I am. And he, th he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. There is no really good way to translate the concept of this name. The literal is, I shall be just as I shall be. A literal Hebrew translation, but, but that doesn't really literally give us the full picture. This I am who I am is the best, it's the best way to try to wrap your mind around who God is saying that he is. It's not who I was, it's who I am. It's not just who I am in the moment. It's who I was, who I am, and who I will eternally be. It's not just who I am. It's what I shall be. It's what I am. It's what I do. It's, it's everything. It's amazing. He gave us his name. And in giving us his name, he made us his own. Galatians 4, 6, Paul writes, he gave us his name so that his spirit and his spirit so that we could be brought into his family. He says the same thing in, in Romans 8, chapter 5, 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 15. He gave us his name. He adopted us and he dispelled fear. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. He gave us his name to walk with authority in our calling. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It's what we call the Great Commission. Jesus said, Behold, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, in my name and make disciples. Here in this, these verses, he goes on and he says, I've given you my name and it shall be a memorial Verse 15, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. He has given us his name as a memorial to all generations. He's given us his name to remember, to know who he is. I am that I am. I'm going to skip to verse 21 as we end because we need to end. There's so much here. I want you to see, though, before I go to this last part, where Moses says, I, who am I, God, that you would send me? And we often think this about ourselves. Who are we that God would send us? Well, who are we that God would consider us? Well, who are we that God would save us? Who are we? Well, the Bible says he's given us his name. He's made us his children. He's put his spirit on the inside of us. It's not about us. It's about him. And this is what God was telling Moses. Moses said, who am I, God? I can't even talk right. 
And, and, and if we boil all of this down, what God really is telling Moses, Moses, this is really not about you. This is about me. You, you're not going in your name. You're going in my name. You're not going in your power. You're going in my power. You're just my tool. You're just my vessel. You're just my instrument. I'm going to use you, Moses, to demonstrate and manifest myself, not just to the children of Israel, but to Pharaoh and to the whole creation. So that 3,500 years later in this little church in Taylor, Texas, they're going to still be talking about what, what happened in Egypt. And not only that, but they're going to be rejoicing over it for all eternity because what God did in Egypt was a type and a shadow of the real salvation and the real deliverance that he brought when he sent the true deliverer, the ultimate deliverer and savior, Jesus Christ. So God is able to use us even when we think that we are not able to be used. Stop trusting in yourself and start trusting in God. Verse 21 says, listen, when you lead the children of Israel out, you tell them to ask their neighbors to give them gold and silver and clothing and everything else. God is able to give us favor in the midst of the most unfavorable circumstances. Now think about this. God turned the slave class in Egypt into the recipients of the most lavish riches of those that were most privileged in Egypt. Here, take my stuff, just leave. And they spend 40 years in the wilderness and they never have to go to Ross or Old Navy or hit the clearance racks at Kohl's to find their clothing because God sent them out with gold and silver and clothes and he didn't even let their clothes wear out the whole time they wandered around the wilderness. If we measure God's favor, though, and our riches based strictly on the material things we gain in this world, we will find ourselves most impoverished. The favor and the richness God has blessed us with in Christ through the gospel of our salvation far exceeds any amount of worldly wealth or prosperity. What God has given to us in Christ could never be gained through worldly means, and it makes all the wealth of all the world less than a heap of dung by comparison. Don't ever think your worth and your richness has anything to do with the size of your bank account. If you are in Christ, you are rich beyond measure. You are rich beyond any definition the world can put upon you. God has given us infinitely more than all the riches of Egypt when he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Listen. Listen to what Paul declares in Romans chapter in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6. Just as he has blessed us in the heavenly places in Christ with every spiritual blessing just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, not according to your works, not according to your perceived worth, not according to the world's worth they place on you, 
but according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Why are you accepted in the Beloved? Because of God's grace. Because He chose to accept you. Because it was His good pleasure to accept you. To the praise of the glory of His grace by which by that grace which he made us accepted in the beloved. Hallelujah. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is the hope we have. That is the promise we have. I want to invite you to the Lord's table. And as you are invited to this table, you are invited to trust in Christ. For it is only by faith that we may come to him. It is only through faith that we are able to please him. By faith, Moses approached the burning bush. By faith, he took off his sandals and walked on holy ground. This table is holy. The bread and the cup is holy. God does not only bid us to come to his table, but he bids us to come and eat its food, to eat the bread of his body and drink the cup of his blood which is more holy than we can imagine. That we would become one with Him by grace through faith. Church, I invite you to come to the table, to come to Jesus, to come with childlike faith in the forgiveness of sin and the new life that He has provided for us in Christ. Please come to the table. Let's stand. I want to give you your charge today. I charge you to remember that God does not work as we would work. God does not move as we would move. And that God's time is not our time. His methods and His timing are other than our own. But know this, God is working. God is moving. And God is bringing to pass His eternal plan and His eternal purpose. Consider your own life and be encouraged. God is working in ways that you do not know and you cannot see. But know this, as John records for us in 1 John 4.19, as Scripture teaches us that we love Him because He first loved us. And as you love God, even as you may struggle to love through pain and suffering, know that God first loved you know that in his love he is working all things for your good and for glory know that he has given to you his name and that you are to not forget who he is he is the great i am that i am the name that speaks of his eternal existence his eternal power and his eternal undying promise of glory I want to end with a favorite quote from Tim Keller about this truth that God is working all things for good and for glory. Tim Keller writes, The resurrection means everything sad is going to eventually come untrue and it will somehow be greater for once being broken and lost. I charge you to know and remember this truth. You can know this now 
even though you may not see this now. You hear me, church? You can know this even though you may not see this. As the old song proclaims, one day our faith will become sight. And what a glorious day that will be. Amen. May the assurance of who God is carry you and uphold you. May we all and all generations know that he is God, that he is the great I am who keeps his promise to a thousand generations. May the knowledge of him and Christ guard your heart and guard your mind with peace that passes understanding. May the Lord uphold you and strengthen you to stand in his truth for his glory in these exciting and challenging days before us. May his grace go with you and encompass you and uphold you and carry you to glory. Let's sing our thanks to God.